0: Why don't we go ahead and read our scripture for today. Mark 4, 35, through the end of chapter 4, and Mark 5. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Geneseans. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say who touched me? And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were there with him and went in where the child was Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told him to give her something to eat. Pastor Mike.
1: Well, good morning, Redeemer City. It's my uh, privilege to be with you this morning. I appreciate your pastor's kindness to me and his warmth to me and patience over the series of um, weeks and months that we were working out uh, the details for today. Uh, I also want to take a minute to thank Jeff for uh, connecting Nate and I. Um, A couple months ago, uh, Jeff indicated that he and I are pushing 30 years uh, of our friendship. Um, And it was 28 or so years ago that Jeff and I were first introduced. Uh, His parents were very concerned about the direction of Jeff's life as a, you know, 8th grade student. And so they were looking for... um, a new school, a new friend group, I exaggerate a little bit, but nonetheless, uh, Jeff was uh, being introduced to a school that I was attending, and on that day, the principal called me down to the office, and I was going to be the tour guide, the host for um, this new kid who was coming to the school. So that's how uh, Jeff and I first got connected, and uh, many good things came from that day, including getting his life straightened out, which uh, clearly I take much too much credit for. But even better than that, within about the first uh, 10 minutes or so, um, I introduced Jeff to one of my friends. Her name was Becky Berger. You now know her as Becky Larson. And uh, look what they've become since, right? I mean, just a a wonderful, um, wonderful friend and love them so much. Uh, I recently ran across a quote. I think it encapsulates well um, the depth of my appreciation uh, for the friendship of both Jeff and Becky Larson in my life. And here's what it says. It says, a good friend knows all your best stories, and a great friend has lived them with you. It's been the privilege of my life to call Jeff and Becky my friends. We've shared so many of those uh, moments together, um, those high school memories. We chuckle about those from time to time. We've done in college, we've done marriage, we're in each other's weddings, we've done kids, we've cheered each other on for career successes. We have successfully navigated two Packers Super Bowls in 30 years. Um, Hopefully there's a few more of those on the horizon. Uh, We've done a few of the lows together as well. And um, those are deeply, deeply meaningful uh, relationships in uh, my life. Over the years, um, Jeff has called me up as a man. He's called me out uh, when I have needed that. The words of Proverbs 27 come to mind where they say, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Do you have a friend who can wound you out of love? I do. I have that. And I know it's true because of my friendship with Jeff. So Jeff, I love you, man. I'm thankful for you. I love your family. I love your kids, um, And it's really my privilege to say that to you publicly today. So, Redeemer said, you guys got a good one in Jeff. You probably know that, but from 30 years of history, I can assure you of that as well. So, we are in the book of Mark, and by we, I mean you, and now me as well today, uh, focusing today on the the kingship of Jesus with special emphasis in Mark 4 and Mark 5 with uh, a sermon that I've just simply titled, The Power of the King. So if you're the note-taking type, uh, feel free to jot that down, the power of the king. Um, Hopefully you are there today um, as we have just read that passage. Um, I will note in advance that Pastor Nate was nice enough to give me 50 verses. So I hope you don't have any urgent plans this afternoon because we're going to be here a while. I feel like a a Snickers commercial um, coming on. Not going anywhere. So 50 verses. We will um, cover them with... uh, some depth in some places. But start in verse uh, 35 of Mark chapter 4. And this is the story of Jesus calming the storm. And this is potentially a familiar story for those of us who have grown up in a church world. Or for those of us who have maybe taught a kids a Sunday school lesson along the way. Because it is one of the kind of best known stories. And one of the best known miracles of Jesus. If there were a podium of the top three best known stories. Stories of Jesus. This one may very easily make the podium, and there's a couple reasons for that. Obviously, it's very dramatic, right? And the storm, and the sea, and the disciples, and then it's calm, and whoa, what happened? We'll get to that in a minute. But I think another reason for its popularity and for um, its ease of teaching is because we can pretty quickly uh, make the application from the story to our lives that if Jesus can calm the storm on the sea, then he can calm the storm in your life and mine. And you and I have lived enough years that we know that storms come in a variety of ways in our life, right? There can be relational struggle, there can be financial struggle, there can be medical struggle, there's aging parents, there's difficult children, there's job loss, there's sickness, I mean, you name it, right? Um, And so storms of life come, and it is both true and helpful to know from this story in Mark chapter 4, that when the storms of life come, um, Jesus... Jesus is there to calm them just as he is there, was there in the boat to calm the storm on the sea. And that is true and that is important and we need to know that. Uh, But I think that's incomplete as we uh, digest these stories here because so often we stop there with a true conclusion but perhaps an incomplete conclusion. And so it would be uh, tempting to wrap up, pray, Jesus calm the storm, Jesus can calm the storm in your life, and uh, we can depart knowing that truth. Again, not wrong, but perhaps not complete. So let's back up for a minute, let's take another run at this familiar story with maybe an ounce of patience as we do so. Now we've got to get the context here in the book of Mark, which I know you have been working through for a while, and and the book of Mark, in just like these four or five stories that we looked at today, very much feels like an eyewitness account, right? It feels like someone dispatched the journalist and, and Mark, the local TV reporter, is going to the scenes of these different scenarios and getting eyewitness accounts of who is this guy and what is he doing? And talking to people who were there, and talking to people who saw this and recounting for us these pretty dramatic instances, almost giving us a play by play recap of these big events that have happened and Mark is the author, we know that, and it seems to be established with pretty good credibility that as um, as the author, Mark himself was not the eyewitness, but relied heavily on eyewitness accounts throughout his gospel and Very good um, theologians and very good scripture experts um, have taught us that Mark relies a lot on Peter for his accounts of the gospel. And so if not exclusively so, you can certainly get a feel for that in Mark's gospels because what do we know about Peter? Well, we know a couple things, right? He's often impulsive. Uh, He often acts quickly, uh, sometimes before he thinks, we know he's prone to dramatic swings. Jesus, I'll never deny you, deny you three times, the rooster crows, right? Jesus, tell me to walk on the water, and he does, and then he sinks, right? So we, we know that, that, that Peter is often the first one to answer, usually, well, maybe not usually, sometimes without thinking it through, and Peter is a ready-fire-aim guy, Right? Not ready, aim, fire, but ready, fire, aim. He's always antsy, always moving. And that's a little bit of what we've just read today in Mark 4 and in Mark 5. There's intensity in each and every one of those stories, but then, boom, quickly on to the next, and then on to the next, and then on to the next. We read four pretty dramatic accounts that were, what, 10, 12 verses each, and immediately we were on to the next one. the author here, Mark, does not dwell on these accounts too long. We get a pretty rapid fire approach. He calmed the storm. He cast out the demons. He healed a woman who touched his garment, and he raised a dead girl back to life. And there's not a lot of dwelling on these accounts. They're factual, they're immediate, they're kind of choppy, and we are on to... The next thing. So how do we make a little bit of kind of macro sense of what we just read? Um, Let me uh, provide you with um, a pretty simple outline. It's not mine. Famous Bible teacher, Bible um, scholar, and really pastor of pastors, uh, Warren Wearsby helpfully outlines these stories for us in a very helpful fashion that I think corresponds quite nicely to the sermon series that you are in here. And so the power of the king is defined in these four stories, In these four ways. Perhaps you want to jot them down. Uh, Jesus demonstrates his power over danger. Okay, that's the storm, right? He demonstrates his power over danger. Jesus demonstrates his power over demons. The demon-possessed man, the demons are cast out. Jesus demonstrates his power over disease, the woman uh, with the issue of blood. By the way, uh, that's the text we preached last week at Spring Creek, so kind of uh, interesting that uh, I'm in there this week. And then number four, Jesus demonstrated his power over death, right? So Jesus has power over danger, Jesus has power over disease, Jesus has power over demons, and Jesus has power over death. And if he has power over all those things, church, what doesn't he have power over? Nothing. Nothing. Right, And I think Mark, through the lens of Peter, is telling us here, look at all the things that the king has power over. The things that were feared the most, danger, disease, demons, and death, Jesus has power over each and every one of those things. And while choppy and while we move from story to story quite quickly, I don't think we can miss the point that Mark is expressing to us that Jesus, the king, has power over all of these key areas of life. And as I was reading in Mark 4 and 5 and kind of preparing for uh, the lesson today, I was um, reminded of a passage in Isaiah chapter 40 that, that kind of take, takes us to a, a macro level perspective and reminds us maybe a little bit more academically, at least not in the context of a storm, not in the context of demons, but but as kind of a thought experiment, if you will, of how Isaiah communicates to us these same types of truths of the power of the king over all of life. And so I'm in Isaiah 40, I'll read a few verses for us, but I want you to see the strategy of Isaiah here is asking rhetorical questions. So a lot of questions are asked in this section, and the idea of a rhetorical question is that you know the answer. You don't need to say it out loud because the answer should be known just based on The question, so here we go, Isaiah 40, starting in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, the king, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and he reduces rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. And and I think we need the macro context of Isaiah 40 to zoom in on the micro story of Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5 because we need to understand first on the conceptual level the power of the king and then that must be applied in the challenges and in the moments that we find ourselves in uh, in life where it is hard where there is danger where there is disease where there may be demons where there may be death those are the places that that power of the king is on display in our lives and so isaiah 40 asks this series of rhetorical questions well do you not know you should have you not heard well listen has it not been told from the beginning look go back and read it start at the beginning and and read what has been given have you not understood You better get to understanding. To whom will you compare me? No one. Who is my equal? No one. Who created all of this? Right? God did. But the most important question of all of Isaiah 40 is the one the disciples should have been asking in Mark 4 and they weren't. The most important question in Isaiah 40 is, why do you complain? Okay? Why do you complain? And Isaiah 40 answers that question for us in the abstract, right? Uh, Isaiah points to some very important characteristics of God that are the antidote to our complaining. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is omnipotent and holy and separate. He is perfect in endurance. He is everlasting. He is omniscient. He is providential. He is sovereign. He is unyielding. He is unceasing. And we need to have that understanding of God in the abstract so that in those moments, like Mark 4, like Mark 5, when the storm comes, we have an anchor amidst the storm so we are not tossed and we are not thrown about in the storm, but we are anchored. And so I remind us of these big words about God from Isaiah as we get into the story in Mark because if we don't get them, I think we jump too quickly to an incomplete conclusion that God has power over the sea, so God has power over your life. That's true, but it's incomplete. So back to Mark 4, I want us to ask this question. Why were the disciples in the storm in the first place? Okay, Jeff read it for us. Look at verse 35. Um, Whose idea was it to cross the lake? Church? Church? Whose idea was it to cross the lake? Jesus' idea, that's right, that's right. Um, Did Jesus know there would be a storm? Yes, okay. Uh, Did Jesus know how this situation would play out? Yes. Did Jesus have something really important in mind to teach the disciples when he set this situation into motion? You guys are good. But let me prod you a little bit more, maybe from a, a slightly different direction, was this storm in Mark 4 the result of anyone's sin or disobedience? Hmm. Nate's saying no. All right, I'm with you, Nate. Was, the result, was this storm the result of someone being foolish in some way? Remember the story of Jonah. That storm was prompted by the disobedience and the foolishness of Jonah, right? But in this story... Um, It wasn't prompted by sin. It wasn't prompted by disobedience. Now, can you and I find ourselves in storms and in bad situations in life because we're foolish? Because we're disobedient? Sure. Sure, we can. We can facilitate some of those circumstances in our lives. And yet, in this story, the disciples were neither foolish nor disobedient. Jesus had something bigger in mind. One Jeff story for you that's not really that bad, but nonetheless, one of the stories my kids like to hear me tell is, I think it was high school, maybe it was college, Jeff and Becky and I and a couple of our other friends, it was like Christmas break, and we took our buddy's Ford Explorer, we went out on Pewaukee Lake, and we started doing backward donuts on the lake, um, avoiding snowmobilers and fishing shanties and islands and all the rest. It wasn't really that dramatic, but nonetheless, we did drive out on the lake, and When you're 19, that's kind of a fun idea. Um, Was it a great idea? Probably not that great. Could a bad outcome have resulted from our kind of teenage foolishness? Sure, it, it certainly could have. Thankfully, it didn't. But you and I have lived long enough, we know that there are times in our life when our foolish decisions result in negative consequences for us and sometimes for those around us. And yet... That doesn't seem to be present in this story. The disciples did not find themselves in a difficult situation because of their own disobedience or their own foolishness. And so, we're left with a really big question that I want us to lean into today for the most of the rest of our time together. And here's the big question. Can God, for his purposes, lead us into storms and lead us into trials in our life for his purpose that is not the result of our disobedience or our foolishness? And the answer is yes. Yes, he can. Can God, for his purposes, lead us into circumstances, lead us into trials, lead us into experiences that test our faith and bring you and I face-to-face with our own insufficiency and his sufficiency? And the answer, church, is yes. Yes, he does. I'll give you some examples you know. Hey, Noah, it's never rained to build a boat. Abraham, hey, get up and move. You don't know where you're going, but just go. Hey, Abraham, you finally have that son of promise that has been 100 years in the making, right? Hey, why don't you go sacrifice him? Oh, man, okay. I mean, Daniel, pray to me only, even though the alternative is the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not bow down and pray to the king, even if fire awaits you. Is God doing something in those moments when he creates tension and he creates chaos in the mind of these heroes of the faith? Yeah. Yeah, he is. These faith testing situations that we read about in scripture are God's method of exposing the hearts of those he's testing. When that happens in your life and in my life, it's also a faith testing situation to expose my heart and my trust and who do I actually believe God to be. Did they, those heroes of the faith, those disciples in that boat, did they believe that God was good? Did they believe that God was powerful? Do you and I believe? that God is good. Do you and I believe that God is powerful in those moments of testing when we are confronted with, when we are brought face to face with those challenges and those difficulties in our life, whether they of our are of our own making or whether God is putting them there for our faith formation? Because here's the thing, if God is good, if the king is good, if Jesus is good but not powerful, the boat sinks. If Jesus is powerful but not good, the boat sinks. So he must be good and he must be powerful. I'm reminded of the famous line from the Chronicles of Narnia. If you're a Lewis fan, you may know them. And Lucy is the little girl. She's walking with Mr. Tumnus the Fawn and they're going to go see Aslan, who's the lion, who's the Christ figure in the allegorical story. And Lucy, rightly, as a young girl, is a little bit nervous to meet the lion. And she says to Tumnus, she says, is he quite safe? Is the lion safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Right? Lewis nails it there. And Tumnus responds, he says, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Right? And Lewis, I think, is, is, is narrowing our focus through this children's story into the same lesson that you and I need to learn today because we ought to ask the same question about Jesus, about the king, in the context of the stories that we read today and in the context of our lives. Was the storm safe for the disciples? Well, yes and no, right? Right? Was the storm safe? No. They were with Jesus, so were they safe? Yeah. Uh, Were were, were the demons, with the demon-possessed man in Mark 4, were they safe for Jesus? Well, no. But the man was safer than he had ever been. Uh, Was the the, the disease that this woman had, was, was that safe in the presence of Jesus? No. But was she safe in the presence of Jesus? Yeah. Was was death safe in the presence of Jesus at the end of Mark 5? Well, no. But was the little girl safe in the presence of Jesus? Yeah. Yes, she was. So so let's connect a few of these dots here. I, I start with the rhetorical questions in Isaiah 40 because I want to specifically draw our attention today to the questions that we read in this section of Mark chapter 4. There's a couple that I want to uh, point our attention to. Look at verse 38. Uh, 438, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned?" Okay, I'm just going to tell you, that's a bad question. But before we laugh at them, how often do we ask something like that, Right? The value of hindsight, the value of being in this building today, we're not on the boat, the storm isn't raging around us. We can see how stupid of a question this is. <laughs> had the disciples been with Jesus before Mark 4? Sure. W- were many of them like good Jewish boys who had been raised with the, the, the teachings and the tradition of, of the Old Testament to know about the nature and character of God? Had they seen God act? Had they seen Jesus um, with his compassion and with his love? And had they been with him? yes. All of that they knew. They knew all of it. So, what changed? What changed? They knew the answer, and yet they asked a really dumb question. Here's what changed in their panic, in their distress, in their fear, in the terror of the moment, the urgency of their circumstances overtook their minds and prompted them to ask a question that they already knew the answer to. And this is where it gets to our learning today. Uh, There's a contemporary song with a lyric that I find especially compelling as it relates to these stories and actually as it relates to kind of how we as Jesus' followers live life. And And the lyric goes like this. It says, I won't be formed by feelings... I'll hold fast to what is true. In the boat, the disciples were formed by their feelings of terror. That terror was real, but it clouded what they knew to be true. This is an admirable sentiment that you and I ought to sing and we ought to proclaim in our lives, but only if we actually believe it, only if we're going to actually live it. And that's kind of the heart of the matter, isn't it, right? When we worship Will we worship, will we confirm, will we affirm that truth when we are buffeted on all sides by the storms and the trials of life? Now we see in this story the power of the king, no doubt, but we also see in this story the temptation that you and I have when we face those challenges in our life. We're tempted to allow the terror, we're tempted to allow the pain and the difficulty of the moment to come between us and what we know in our heads, the power of the king. Uh, One of my favorite uh, preachers said it this way while commenting on this story, and I think it's a helpful quote. He said, the very times we need to lay hold of his promises, we are tempted to step back from them, and the times we most need to turn to his word we forget what he has already told us. The disciples forgot. They forgot. That's why we look at Mark 4 at Isaiah 40 to inform Mark 4. You and I must not desert in those moments what we know to be true, even when it doesn't feel like it's true, even when the circumstances are against us. So we are correct. That when we read this story, we are right to conclude that Jesus can calm Jesus' power over the sea. So he can calm the storm in the sea and he can calm the storm in our life. That is true. And that is an important takeaway. But we cannot miss that in this story, when Jesus calmed the storm, he actually created a storm in their hearts. Look at the second question that is asked in Mark 4 by the disciples. Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? I've always liked how the King James renders this passage, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But did you catch the descriptions of the disciples in verse 41? It says they're terrified, but here's the irony, the sea is calm, the wind is gone. The stars are out. They are safer than they have been in this entire storm, and yet they are terrified. Why are they terrified? Shouldn't they be happy? Shouldn't they be high-fiving each other? Shouldn't they be like, "Bro, did you see that? Look what he did. They're terrified. They're terrified because what they understood in that moment is that the power of the king to calm the storm is vastly superior to the storm that they experienced on the sea. And the power of the king shows up in the same way in chapter 5 because it creates more storms in the hearts of people who observe the power of the king than the actual circumstance that they were in. Let me show you what I mean. We'll buzz quickly through chapter 5. Look at verse 15 in chapter 5. Uh, When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Why were they afraid? The guy that had been terrorizing them, the guy who they couldn't bind with chains, the guy who is loud and obnoxious and running amongst the tombs and, and terrorizing them, the problem is solved. Jesus solved it, and yet now they're terrified? They're terrified after the fact? And you know what? They were right. Because the power of the one who has power over the demons is more to be feared and more to be recognized than the power of the demons. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw commotion. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped one. Go back to 30. Go back to 30. Uh, This is when the uh, woman had touched the garment of Jesus. That once the power had gone out of him, he turned around the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? The disciples, you can sense a little sarcasm here, 31. Uh, Jesus, you see the, the crowd around you and yet you ask who touched me? Jesus, come on, man. There's a hundred, there's a thousand people. There's a bunch of people here. Why are you asking that question? preposterous right how could Jesus even know what would he even do and there's doubt and there's disbelief because the circumstances of the moment trump what they know to be they missed the miracle in the moment because they're so concerned about the wrong thing it prompts this storm in their heart and then go to verse 38 verse 38 when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler Jesus saw commotion with the people crying and wailing loudly he went in and said to them, why is all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. This is the first recorded miracle of Jesus bringing someone back to life in all of the scripture here in Mark chapter five. And so in the storm that's calmed, they're terrified. The demon has been cast out They're terrified. The woman has been healed from the issue of blood and the disciples miss the point. And now someone is about to be raised from the dead and they scoff, okay? You and I need to ask these right questions, these same questions that the disciples asked, but we need a different response. We need to be informed by what we know to be true that gives us the proper perspective to navigate these difficult moments, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man that even the demons flee? Who is this man that merely by his touch can heal a woman sick for 12 years? Who is this man that can raise the dead? The display of the power of the king brought the disciples to terror. It ought to do the same for you and I. The power of the king in Mark 4 and 5, we get his uh, displays of his power over the different parts of life, right? His display of his power over danger, over demons, over disease, and over death. And you and I need to pause and ponder that power. What manner of man is this? We need to humble ourselves. We need to be in awe and in reverence and we need to make sure, especially in those moments when you and I find ourselves overwhelmed by our circumstances, that we do not forget what we know to be true just because what we see in front of us seems impossible, seems insurmountable, seems dangerous, seems incurable, seems unknowable. The disciples forgot that in the boat. And you and I are prone to forget. I love the song, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to leave the God I love. That's exactly what's happening in this passage here. When the storms of life come, we are prone to forget. So my exhortation to you, Redeemer City Church, my exhortation to me today is simply this. In every storm and in every trial of our lives, there is an opportunity, I should say a requirement, for you and I to remind ourselves of the identity and the power of the king that we already know. We must not be formed by feelings. We must hold fast to what is true. And friends, we anchor our lives, we anchor our families, we anchor our churches on the power of the king, and we remind ourselves of this power, especially In the circumstances that tempt us to doubt the most. Will you pray with me? Jesus, your power is unmatched. We know that. We sing that. We've read that today. We know the power of the king has no rival and has no equal. We know all of these things in our head. And yet, just like the disciples... (laughs) When we find ourselves in moments of difficulty, moments of um, when we are not sure, when we are pressed on every side, how easy it is for us to forget. Father, etch this truth in our minds, anchor it in our souls, that the power of the king trumps the power of danger, the power of disease, the power of demons, the power of death. The power of anything and everything this side of eternity, the power of anything that we will ever face in our life. Father, I pray that as Jesus' followers and as Jesus' disciples, we would walk through life with the confidence of the power of the King. In spite of our circumstances, in spite of our feelings, in spite of what we see in a world around us that seems to be declining, Father, that we not lose sight of the most important truth of the power of the King. Father, I pray your uh, your blessing and your peace over the people of Redeemer City, uh, for Pastor Nate, for... Uh, teachers and leaders and elders and kids workers and each and every uh, volunteer and and committed person here. Um, Father, I pray that Redeemer City Church would be uh, a light in this place, um, a gospel hope in a uh, community and in a world that um, needs it so desperately. Um, I pray that uh, you would grant um, your favor and great success, however you define that, to Redeemer City Church. It's been my privilege to be here today and to meet some brothers and sisters in Christ that uh, I may never have met otherwise. May we go, Father, in your peace today, reminded of your power and anchored in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.